Sound Pages is a literary series featuring resident artists in the Jack Straw Writers Program. No, no longer her nor hers are these words you could shape on your own lips with your own tongue to reconstruct for a moment her body which had turned to featureless ash which is the last small dust of her voice crying out amidst the living and the dying of the world. This program features the work of 2020 writer Rob Arnold. In the first half, you'll hear his conversation with curator Anastasia René, recorded in the Jack Straw studio. Tell us about your Jack Straw project. My Jackstraw project is basically uh, my manuscript. Um, and my manuscript, which I'm still settling on a title for, um, is essentially a memoir in verse, but a family memoir. Um, it tackles a lot of really complex legacies of trauma in my family. I'm an adoptee. I was a foster child. I was adopted out of foster care. I'm a biracial person. I was raised by white people. And there was a legacy of abuse in the family I was adopted into. I was adopted out of a family that had a legacy of abuse. I was adopted into a family that had a legacy of abuse. So the poems really take a kind of broad look at all of that, that legacy. It's not always my story. It's sometimes, you know, the story of my birth mother who um, is Chamorro and came from the islands and then entered into these really, you know, kind of abusive relationships with men, often military men, mm. um, who either would leave her or, or hurt her in other ways. So that's the project, is um, trying to write more into this story. Um, trying to really complete the manuscript during this time. And I'm very close, I'm happy to say. I've been putting it together, and it's, um, it's pretty close. I'd love to know what connects you most to your genre of writing. I'm a poet. I write poetry. And I sort of came to poetry in college, um, I guess through, through song lyrics, but to me, when I write poetry or when I read poetry, I'm always looking to sort of feel something new about the world. Or for me, when I write poetry, I always want to try to evoke a feeling um, in somebody else that I'm feeling. Um, so um, I always sort of joke that writing and literature in general is like analog telepathy. It's a way for me to to live inside your brain. And uh, and I think poetry gets to that in a much more kind of direct way. Um, you don't have the you don't have the structure of fiction, which is a distancing thing. Um, so you're you're living right inside the feeling. And so for me, like the poems that excite me the most, both my own and other people's are are things that I can immediately feel. I immediately get a sensory feeling of a body feeling. Um, and that's something that I'm trying to do in my work too. What is it like for you as a poet to write what we're calling poetic memoir? Hmm. I think that in the past, there was such a divide between memoirists and poets. And now it's becoming okay in general for hybrid writers and multi-genre writers, you know, cross-genre writers. 
What do you say about poetry when poetry meets a memoir? Mm-hmm. Is it easier to write in a concise, in a spare way when discussing your past? Or do you wish that you were able to write just a straightaway memoir? Uh, well, I think it's—I I wish I could actually write a straight-across memoir. I mean, it's—I've um, tried. I have a couple pieces in the manuscript that actually started as essays, which I then broke into verse. Um, and so they have a really different—the the way the language flows through them is very different. And I think that the difficulty with writing poetic memoir is that it starts in a particulate way, where there are these— fragments of story and the reader doesn't always feel as connected in the in a in a prose memoir you get a lot of connective tissue in a verse memoir you may or may not and one of the difficulties i've had in this um, project is giving out enough information that people can stay connected to the story but not having it be quite so, you know, mm-hmm. step by step as a traditional narrative. So it's quite difficult, and and my, it's a family memoir, and my family's rather complicated because I think that the math in my family is in my nuclear family we have five fathers and three mothers because of adoption and because of remarriages and because of all these various complications. So it can be. Um, it can, you can get a little lost. I have seven siblings. Um, so, and that's just in the adopted side. I have other birth siblings as well. So it's complicated. What pushes you to continue to write poetry? I mean, I think language is a really interesting medium to work with um, as an artist. Um, it's something that we all have. We all have a language. Um, we all have a way of communicating from one person to the other, but formalizing it into poetry does something different to the language and um, in a kind of a sculptural way, I think. Um, and I think that, you know, a Indigenous peoples specifically have a different relationship with language. We're, you know, we're often speaking in a, a colonizer's language, and sometimes our own languages have been colonized. Like my my mother's Chamorro; she's a native Chamorro speaker, but the Chamorro language is forty uh, percent Spanish mm. because of so many years uh, of Spanish colonial legacy. Forty percent of that language is just gone. So there's something a little extra about language. It's both a way to connect people because I have this language, you have this language, a person listening to or reading these poems has this language, but it's also a distancing technique because people who don't um, who don't speak that language don't have that same kind of connection. So it's uh, language is fascinating to me, and poetry as a way to formalize the, the language is something, um, to me, again, it's like the most formal expression of language. What's been the biggest epiphany for you when you think about your journey as a writer? 
When I was a younger writer, I used to write these really jewel-like, very highly imagistic, highly linguistic poems, um, almost like haiku. In fact, I was really influenced by ancient Japanese and Chinese traditions, more so than English. You know, um, I was really influenced by those poetries as they came into English. Um, so my poetry was really short, um, five lines, eight lines. If it was ten lines, it was an epic poem. Um, and I couldn't seem to get past that point. Um, and I think about five or six years ago, I had this idea about resolution. Um, if you watch videos on the internet, you know, there's a there's something high def um, and there's, you know, low resolution. Like I, I started thinking visually because my first art was visual art. So I started thinking about poetry visually. And the poems that I was writing were almost like low def, you know, they were like low definition, the resolution was low in them. And I started deciding to push into the language a little bit more to kind of get a deeper resolution, almost like a pixelated version of it. So uh, it's kind of hard to explain, but it basically what it did is it allowed me to break open my tiny jewels and make much longer poems. And now poems that I'm writing are multi-pages, some, some are long sequences. So um, it allowed me to basically break something open. If I said tree in a poem, you know, 10 years ago, it would just be tree. You know, mm -hmm. it would be like an iconic tree. Whereas now I would think about how long has that tree been growing out of that piece of concrete? You know, who's tried to climb that tree? You know, I started thinking about these things in a much more in-depth way. Every single noun became like a hyperlink. Mm -hmm. um, like I could dive in deep into the history. And so I was able to kind of like turn my poems from from these tiny little jewels into much more developed pieces. I know it might be uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable for many writers, but I'd love for you to talk about what you celebrate in your writing. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> oh, your face. <laughs> mm. Well, it's, it is hard. I mean, I think it's the last thing that we allow ourselves to do mm -hmm. sometimes. Um, and in my professional life, I, I'm very accustomed to celebrating other people's writing, but it's harder, actually. Um, but I do think that, you know, I do feel like I'm doing the story justice in these poems, you know, that I'm trying to be fair, accurate, and not afraid of it. Because fear, for many years I didn't write this because uh, I was afraid. I was afraid of how I would feel about it, and I was afraid of how other people in my family would feel about it. And so I think that the thing I celebrate are, is the bravery of these poems and of, of myself as a poet engaging with these somewhat difficult subject matters. Uh, actually, I'll say very difficult subject matters. It is not easy, and um, I think that the poems really do tackle that difficulty very directly. Now we'll hear a selection from Rob's live reading. These next few poems are family poems. Um, and they also sort of interrogate um, child violence, so um, content warning for that. Uh, this next poem uses borrowed language from a caseworker report prepared 
by the Bremerton Social Services offices, what we'd call the DSHS. It's both an erasure of the report and an expansion of it. And it begins with an epigraph from the report that uh, says, it was felt then and remains in our opinion now that no one foster family could simultaneously meet the needs of all three of these children. What was said? The caseworkers report sent in triplicate citing their reasons. For example, the profound physical and emotional needs of these children, profound amplifying severity, preamble to the damage, to the repercussions, how the little girl quakes, how her body shakes uncontrollably, meaning unable to contain a stillness that will never inhabit her body, its appearances, what it could be and what it could not be the body's permanent neurological damage, its state of renunciation, of damage to the brain, to the flow of time, its own kind of forgetting. A partial diagnosis, parietal, a cerebral palsy, or multiple sclerosis-like affliction. The afflicted being those in need, those who require the hand of the state, afraid of their families, of their own bodies, how the boy had become fearful of any amount of water, giver, and ender of life, this dream of having his head held down, of somehow breathing that used and tepid bathwater, part womb, part hysteria. He'd become hysterical at the mere touch of his arms, legs, or buttocks. Years later, the massage therapist will ask, is this scarring from an accident? And the man will answer, it happened when I was a child. The child who stared into space, hid behind chairs, who one could easily describe as a vegetable. Conversely, a pile of meat, insensate, unresponsive. It is still his default mode, a body memory of the incredible physical abuse of the past, unable to be held in the mind, like his entire being so meager, so frightened to be noticed, because noticing is recognition, a reckoning, a chain reaction, how he reacted almost violently to kissing or smiling up close with teeth bared. And what does this do to his own smile? That sycophant face he puts on to disguise, the stain of judgment, the lost names, lost histories, the brown-skinned mother swapped for the white-skinned mother, how the report said fearful of his babysitter who was dark-skinned, how the report said problems of tolerating abuse to herself by her husband, how the report said lack of motivation and protecting them from repeated attacks, how the report said we feel there could be other alternatives, we feel there is some doubt about the maturity of the mother. This next poem um, is a mother poem as well. Um, and it um, posits language as a kind of immortality and it riffs off the physics of uh, sound and, um, but you don't need to know that. <laughs> it's called a resurrection. Words formed in the mouth as vibrations in the throat as thoughts made external, propelled through air, from neuron flare through electric hum, as when as a child, you finger the light socket by mistake 
and felt a kind of cosmos burning through. Whole body sparked with fear, with the amp and the frequency, until you heard your mother calling your name. Her gentle voice, vocal cords fluttering and contracting, stirring the ether between you, the cochlear cave of the ear, and becoming recognition, a reassurance, a blush in your brain, emotion framed by aural pulse, a wave that now, years later, still flows outward, unbodied, molecule exciting molecule until at last it rejoins, like your mother's body before it, the universal flame. As radiant and fleeting as this din of recollection, which is something like the soul returned, something loosed from time, from simple consequence. Though her face is fogged, no longer her nor hers are these words you could shape on your own lips with your own tongue to reconstruct for a moment her body which had turned to featureless ash which is the last small dust of her voice crying out amidst the living and the dying of the world um this is a meditation on naming it's called an unnaming partial and in the print version there are black boxes um, and so I'll be reading those black boxes as either um, name redacted or blank um, so if you hear those words that's what you should be visioning an unnaming partial name redacted first father I unname you I place over you the black box of anonymity I imagine you late into the night Young sailor, uniform gleaming white in my dreams. Stationed overseas with no desire to see the sun with your name. I enter your data into the search box while the train is stopped. I catalog the records in my mind. You were born in Wisconsin. Your father dies. You live in the Philippines. You live in San Diego. You live in Las Vegas. Your mother dies. I watch it all in the light emitting diodes. How far or how near I am to your physical presence, I will never know. Your face that I'll never know. Your hair, your hands. I look in the mirror. Is it you that I see? Name redacted. I unname you. I am marked by you. I carry the scars from your hands, from the cigarettes you snuffed on my neck and my back, the lumps where you bit my ass and my legs. Are you in prison? Were you a small man, as my mother claimed? The mother who raised me, who accepted my sister and me in the middle of the night when the caseworker called? Sailor boy, did you wear your dress whites to court? Sailor boy. Who else would you maim? Name redacted, father of my brother, whose surname I bore at birth. Name redacted, I unname you. The original husband, first husband, the pre-father. Your dad was Irish, from Calasser, County Mayo. How did it feel to grow up an immigrant's boy? How did it feel when you found your only son when you gifted him everything, all of your debts and broken dreams before you died? What did it feel like to tell your ex-wife 
her new baby boy could share your last name. Years after your death, your son would foreclose in the house you had willed him, but not before it was stripped clean by the heroin addicts my sister let inside. Ever the provider, providing your name, your home, your desertion, your seed. Name redacted. Nay blank, nay blank, nay blank. I unname you. The first mother and the last. Wife of blank, wife of blank, wife of blank, nothing of blank. I remember your voice on the phone asking, is it really you? I remember you paying for the motel room, telling me your story over muffins and eggs. You were an adoptee too, servant girl taken in by the master's family, the oldest sister, related to no one. You took care of everyone. You married a man who would beat you, bludgeon the children. When you tried to get help, they took your kids and left you behind. Name redacted, alias blank. I unname you once more. The second father, whose mugshot I find on an internet search while lying on my couch at the cusp of midnight. Is this truly your last known address? This plain brick building behind the transmission shop? Height 5'4", tattoo of a grim reaper, scar on your left forearm from jumping out a courthouse window. Were you made this way? Born into a family of monsters? 19 years old when you wrecked yourselves into our lives? How much longer before I'd have died at your hands? Is this your listing on the Cincinnati Sex Offender Registry? Is this your gravestone gleaming white in Williamstown, Kentucky, 2,397 miles from where I sleep each night? Is this your face cataloged in the database, flesh wilted with age? Can I see my sister's eyes in yours? Who is the son that bears your name? What marks does he carry? Name redacted, born as blank, I unname you too. Bearing the scars of all of your fathers, your uncles, your brothers. One name for each life started then lost. One name for each life destroyed by choice. For each person you failed to become. What is your original name? Your ancestral name before the Spaniards landed with their guns and their God, their slavery disguised as salvation. I unname you from all the names inflicted and withheld. Names going back to antiquity, to a time before naming, to a time when mourning was a purified act. To all the elders who came before, abusers or nurturers, alcoholics, drug addicts, criminals or saints, who entered the fire at the close of their lives and were assumed to all of them, I now ask forgiveness. Is it wrong to say I wanted to feel their heat? Is it wrong to succumb to their blistering flame? Thank you. Sound Pages is a Jack Straw production. Produced by Alyssa Keene and Daniel Gunther at Jack Straw Cultural Center. Our recording engineers are Steve DeTori, Daniel Gunther, Joel Maddox, and Ayesha Ubiatilaka. Our theme music is by Sassy Black, produced through the Jack Straw Artist Support Program. 
The 2020 curator of this program is Anastasia Renee, and the narrator for this podcast is Alyssa Keen. The Jack Straw Writers Program was inspired by an over-the-back fence conversation in 1996 between author Rebecca Brown and Jack Straw Executive Director Joan Rabinowitz. The program is made possible with support from the City of Seattle Office of Arts and Culture, Four Culture King County Lodging Tax Fund, the Washington State Arts Commission, the National Endowment for the Arts, Arts Fund, and individual contributors. Special thanks to Larry Lawrence for transcribing our writers' interviews. All of the writers heard in this series are published in the Jack Straw Writers Anthology. You can subscribe to this and other Jack Straw podcasts through your favorite podcast app. To hear more episodes and learn about our other programs, visit us at jackstraw.org. Thank you for listening.